It is the kingdom of God breaking through in us, which is alive and vibrant and powerful. And I feared that Jesus would be late. But Jesus does not disappoint. He is exactly who he says he is. And he does exactly what he says he will do. My name is Leah. Um, I have a little bit of, uh, uh, I guess you would call it a partnership with anxiety when it comes to public speaking. Um, but nonetheless, it is absolutely my privilege to be able to share some of my life with Jesus with you today. And my, my hope and my prayer is that um, through maybe a shaking voice or a, a racing heartbeat, you will see him. Um, that's really my prayer. Well, we've been looking at the Jesus way the last few weeks. And I think when we look at Jesus in scripture, we often see that he doesn't always come through, or maybe we could even say he doesn't often come through in the way we would expect. His kingdom looks different from the one we wanna build for ourselves, and he's a very different king than the one we think we want. Songwriter Kendall Payne sings about this Jesus in her song entitled Aslan. He won't say the words you wish that he would. Oh, he won't do the deeds you know that he could. He won't think the thoughts you know he should. But he is good. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And yet, sometimes I think we question this because he doesn't give us what we want. And when we experience pain or suffering or disappointment, sometimes we struggle to believe his goodness. Today, I'd really like to challenge us to consider that God, who is always love and always truth and always sovereign, always does what is best, despite our perceptions. That he can do more than we ask or imagine suggests that sometimes our imagination is not too big for God, but too small. It can be challenging to reframe our imagination or expectations when we're suffering or when we're grieving a loss of something or someone that we hold dear because our hearts just ache so very much and we feel really scared. It seems easier to interpret that God is absent or incapable or at the very best late. Maybe you can relate to that. Several years ago, um, God called us into the lives of some neighbors, and we loved them, and we shared lots of life, and they loved us, and we cared for their precious little children. They had twins, a boy and a girl, and the husband was a very, very broken man, and um, we sought help for him and intervention and intervention for the wife and kids. But the situation in their home worsened and um, his drug addiction ended up, um, well, ended up leading to um, the death of their daughter in their home in a very reckless way. Um, we were all heartbroken. I mean, just utterly heartbroken 
that was 25 years ago. And I wrestled with whether we had done enough, done enough, but at my core, I think I was wrestling with where Jesus was and if he was late. <laughs> Felt to me like Jesus was late. 18 years ago, when our youngest son came to live with us from a really challenging situation um, that continued to devolve, there were two long years between his placement with us and um, the, the time that his birth mom terminated her rights and we were able to accept him into our home as our son. And that was two years of a lot of chaos, but it was also two years of just crying out to the Lord for rescue for this little boy. Two years of wondering if he was gonna have to go back or whether he would be safe. There were a lot of months when I wrestled with that timeline. Around that time, I lost my brother to mental illness. Then about 10 years ago, when our daughter was in middle school, um, she became ill with a mysterious chronic illness that caused dysfunction in all of the systems of her body. It led to injuries. She was sidelined from school, from her favorite activities, from her friends. Um, each day was wrought with pain and symptoms and uncertainty. And we sought help from doctors, and we went to Riley, and we went to Mayo Clinic, and there were no answers. She's 22, she's an adult, she's married, she continues to struggle with her illness. And I continue to wrestle with God about his timing. At about the same time our son, our oldest son was in high school, he was struggling with anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. And I feared that Jesus would be late again. Felt like things were spinning out of control. I've already shared with you, I have a relationship with anxiety, one that I'm, I'm trying to break up with it, but we just continue. And in the midst of all of that, circumstantially, I couldn't do anything to stop any of it. Joy and hope and peace sometimes felt really elusive. And I noticed from observing my own story and from entering into the story with others, that it's often these painful times when the enemy likes to slither around in our thoughts, eager to help us make sense of our circumstances, to sell us a lie that feels true and drive some sort of wedge between us and the life that God has for us. We think maybe God's not listening. Our prayers are just hitting the ceiling. Or maybe God isn't answering my prayers because he doesn't really love me. Or maybe he would love me if I just worked harder, if I could just be better. Maybe God isn't really good after all. Or maybe my desires are the problem. Maybe if I just shut down my desires and my wants, then I don't have to worry about being disappointed with God. That feels safer. Well, I guess my invitation to you today is to consider opening those very tender places in your story to Jesus. I'm not going to be able to have time, and, and I'm not sure I, I'm the authority on understanding all of the complexities of evil and, and pain and suffering and death in the world. We're, we're not going to get to all of that today, but, but today, could we just hold those things, those places of disappointment and pain and frustration and those questions, and would we even be willing to hold our interpretations up to the light of Jesus and say, would you help me reframe this in light of what's true? So that's my prayer. Can you just pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you help us today 
to open our hearts and our minds to your word and to you. Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, in whatever places of us are dead or disillusioned, we cry out to you and we ask that you would bring your life there. Thank you that that is your heart. Thank you that that is who you are. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at John 11. It's a story that's probably familiar to many of you, the one of Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Um, I don't have slides today, so if you want to turn in your Bibles or on your Bible app on your phone, feel free. John 11. We're going to look at the story. We're not going to read every verse for the sake of time. Um, but I'd like to frame our reading of this with the question, is Jesus late? <laughs> is Jesus late? Starting in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. We read on that Jesus and the disciples do finally make their way to Bethany in Judea, and they go there despite the fact that the last time Jesus was there, the Jews there wanted to kill him. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So here we see already in the passage that Jesus gets word from his friend Mary and his friend Martha that his other friend, their brother, Lazarus, is very sick. Mary and Martha know Jesus to be a healer, so they send for him. The phrase here is the one you love, and that implies that they're very close friends, right? They're not just acquaintances. These are dear friends of Jesus. Now, the passage doesn't necessarily tell us everything that was said to Jesus when the news arrived, but I'm guessing the message, or at least the implied message was, hurry, hurry, <laughs> your friend is dying and we need you here so you can heal him. Yet we read in verses five and six, this confounding thing. Now Jesus loved Mary or Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus loved them, so he stayed where he was two more days. The word so connotes a connection between Jesus' love and his action. Jesus loved, so he waited. The waiting was because of love. In Jesus' timing, he was not late, but was instead on the timetable of perfect love. Jesus' actions were knowing, they were intentional. He knew, he knew Lazarus would die. They were for God's glory, they were for his own glory, and they were for the expression of love for his dear friends. 
But that leads us to a question. What on earth could be loving about letting your friend die? Dave said last week that love is self-sacrificially seeking the best interest of another. What could have been more loving than healing Lazarus? Verse 18. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And so Martha goes and calls her sister Mary, who comes quickly this time, followed by some others who were there to comfort her. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. This is a fact that Jesus already knew. And it's also a fact that's significant because Judaic law taught that through to the third day following death, the spirit remained with the body and there was still hope of resuscitation to life. Have you seen The Princess Bride? Do we know this movie? It's really old, but some of you are like, yes, we've seen the classic. Okay. You remember the scene where Wesley is unresponsive and he's taken by his friends to Billy Crystal's character, Miracle Max, right? And, um, and, and they're trying to see if they can help him. And they fear that Wesley is dead. And, and Miracle Max says, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead, right? There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And with all dead, well, there's only one thing you can do. What's that? 
go through his clothes and look for loose change. When Jesus arrives to see Lazarus, he is not mostly dead. He is all dead. It's the fourth day. Both Martha and Mary are grief-stricken, and both seem to be wrestling with Jesus' timing. Each of them says the same thing to him. If you had been here, my brother would still be alive. You can hear their anguish in stereo. They come with the same grief, and they really come with essentially the same accusation. But each seems to need something different from Jesus because we see that he responds to them differently. Jesus almost seems to argue with Martha. She says, you're late, and Jesus says, but I am the resurrection and the life. With me, it's never too late. Grief and sadness are pulling at her heart, and Jesus comes in with words of truth to push the tide back toward hope. Jesus' response to Mary is different. The text tells us that Mary is weeping, and the word there denotes that she is wailing. She is overcome with grief, that she is sobbing and wailing. She comes with the same accusation that he is late, but he seems almost speechless with her. Rather than words, Jesus enters into the sadness, and he cries with her. God himself comes and weeps with Mary. This is not a picture of a God who is far off or unremoved from the pain and the deep need of humanity. This is a God who comes close, and he brings his comfort with both words of truth and also with tears. And there's nothing formulaic about the way Jesus comes. There's nothing mechanical or rote. His care is individual, and it's personal. Jesus' ways are mysterious to us, but he knows exactly what he's doing each step of the way because nothing is hidden from him. We see in part, God sees fully. Everything in word and deed is intentional, and he's right on time, and he's doing the best thing, the loving thing, every time, even when it's hard for us to see. Jesus arrives at the tomb. He is deeply troubled in his spirit once again. This time, looking at the tomb that holds his dear friend, he is enraged against evil and death, which were never a part of God's original plan. With tears streaming down his face, he boldly calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And his voice, Jesus' voice, brings life, overpowering the death that has overpowered Lazarus. And Jesus knows that the only way to call Lazarus out of the grave permanently is to put himself in the grave. He knows that this act of raising Lazarus from the dead, of declaring himself publicly through this sign to, the, to be the resurrection and the life, will be the final straw for the Jewish leaders who will in the next few days enact a plot to kill him for what they believe is heresy. Why? because he doesn't fit their framework, because he doesn't fit their expectations of what the Messiah should be. He doesn't think the way they think he should. He doesn't talk the way they think he should. He doesn't act the way they think he should. And so they murder him. That Jesus would arrive late to heal Lazarus, to resurrect him, and then to allow himself to be murdered 
so that he could take up his very own life again to give it to us. This is love. But nobody saw it coming. For some, this will be welcomed and received as the gift that it is. But for some, it's not. For those who weren't willing to acknowledge their own need for a savior, for the righteous who are clinging to their own righteousness and their own good deeds, trusting in their own strength and their own performance to please God, they don't welcome Jesus. Those who hold with closed fists what they think Jesus should be based on their own short-sighted expectations, they miss the amazing gift that Jesus is offering. Even in this very story, bystanders witness this spectacular and undeniable miracle with their very own eyes. Can you imagine? Have you ever thought, if I just saw a miracle, then I would believe? They did. They saw it. But it didn't fit their paradigm. And so for them, it amounted to little more than a really annoying party trick. But there were those who will believe. There were those who will allow their understanding to expand and receive Jesus' greater gift. As Jesus asks for the stone to be rolled away, Martha pushes back on this idea. She says, but, but Jesus, my brother is dead, and he's been dead long enough that there's going to be a smell. I think it's at this moment that Mary's like, yeah, I, I, <laughs> yes, Jesus, I believe you're the resurrection and the life, but... Here's the thing. Uh, I don't think I can bear the sight and the stench of my brother's death if you don't come through for me. If you're not actually who you say you are, I'm just not sure. Because can we take a minute to be sure? But Jesus does not disappoint. He is exactly who he says he is. And he does exactly what he says he will do. Martha had known Jesus to be a healer, but now... She knows him as the resurrection and the life. This was a liminal space for Mary and Martha and the disciples too to experience more of Jesus. This was a place to reframe. This was a place to expand their view. This was a place to believe him. This was a place to receive him more, to receive him as the resurrection and the life. Jesus gave Mary and Martha and Lazarus the gift of being late so that they and all who would hear the news might know him and have eternal life. John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I just also just want to say, I think sometimes we hear eternal life, and I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I've, I think I've thought of eternal life as being kind of like um, extra bonus time on a video game, right? Like, oh, I get an extra life, great, more time, you know, it's not going to run out, that's cool, I get to play longer. Um, I don't find a ton of consolation in that, personally, as eternal life. I, I think there's more to just keeping on living if, if eternal life doesn't change the kind of life that I've known, if it doesn't take the life that I've had that's been dead and give me a whole different kind of life, then I'm not sure I want extra years. <laughs> this is hard, guys. Where we live in this world, things are broken and it's hard. 
The eternal life that Jesus gives is, is this now reality that changes the way we see, the way we think, the way we act, the way we love, the way we even feel. <laughs> it changes the quality of life we have because it takes our old dead life and gives us Jesus' life, <laughs> which is alive and vibrant and powerful. It is the kingdom of God breaking through in us. Your sin, your shame, mine, your pain, mine, your fear, your suffering, your loneliness, your betrayal, death, do not have the final word in Christ who gave his life to overcome everything that threatens to overwhelm you. And that's a gift. We want to celebrate this gift today by sharing communion together. I'd like for us just to take a couple of moments while the band plays just to reflect before we take communion together. I'd like us to do this corporately together uh, since we have a shared life together with Jesus. Um, take a couple of moments just to reflect on your own need for Jesus and to, to look at him and to look at his sacrifice and to uh, really just to receive him anew today. supper with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. my blood which is poured out for for many for the forgiveness of sins drink shared at the beginning some of the the, the difficult places of suffering and, and pain that have brought questions in my life with Jesus and I think it's only right and true and fair to now share with you uh, just some of the ways that Jesus has been speaking his life to me in the midst of that. Jesus has spoken and has, has come to me in many ways out of his goodness. I want to share just a few that are his sweetness to me in the context of suffering. A deeper knowing of Jesus has come. I think sometimes we think that Jesus wants our strength. There's a lot of posturing and a lot of striving and a lot of trying to be strong. And I think, I think we get it wrong. I think that Jesus comes to us in our weakness. 
And I will say that Jesus came to me when I was at the end of myself. I couldn't fix my life. I couldn't fix the problems around me. I couldn't manipulate God to give me what I wanted, but I tried. <laughs> I tried. I couldn't save anyone. I couldn't take away my kids' pain. I couldn't secure their lives. I realized I was powerless. And all I could do was cry out to God to confess my need. But I also needed to repent of my religion. (laughs) Because Jesus is about relationship, not about religion. I did cry out to God for the suffering to end. All I wanted, really, the only thing I could be in touch with, really, was for the pain to end, to be resolved. And and I said, God, I've tried to jump through hoops to make you come through for me and you won't and and I've read the story of Job and I've seen his great suffering and I know that you came to him I know you restored his fortunes but I know that you like he saw your face and that that was that mattered to him seeing your face and I remember confessing to God just on my face I don't even know how to care about seeing your face more than I care about having my kids okay. I don't know how to trust you. I don't know how to know you. I don't know how to get there. I can't move myself. So if we're going to get there, it's going to have to be you. Well, you know what? It is true that he is close to the brokenhearted. Even if we don't see him, he is close. He gave me the grace, gave me the eyes to see and the ears to hear. He doesn't expect us to get over our broken hearts or over our anxiety or over our stuff to get to him. He overcomes those things and comes to us in our place of need. And so like Mary, he came close to me through friends who wept with me and helped me talk to him when I didn't have words. In a hospital emergency room, Jesus was there with me. Our daughter, as a part of her illness, had had a traumatic brain injury and she was getting a CT scan and I was terrified and I waited in the waiting room. And Jesus came close and he gave me a picture of him holding me this deep sense of peace in the midst of the fear and in the midst of the questions and the waiting there was a sense that he was with but that wasn't all he also revealed to me that he was with my girl and when I couldn't be there and when she was hurting and alone he was with her that Jesus has also met me with the comfort of his truth in profound ways. Profound ways that have pushed against the tide of despair and have brought hope. He's continued to teach me through his word where I wrestled in new ways with what he said about himself. And he's spoken to my heart. (laughs) He spoke into my heart in the middle of an anxiety attack on an interstate somewhere in Missouri between two kids who were in separate states and both struggling. And my mind was spinning 
into worst case scenarios. And Jesus interrupted, he broke in and he met me there and he said, even there, even if that were to happen, even there, I would be with you and I will be enough. And there was a part of my heart that day that agreed with him. <laughs> and I agree with him. There's a part of me that knows the truth of this life because Jesus has met me in my deepest need. There's more to go. There are more places. There's more knowing. But what a gift that life is. He offers himself, he offers his life, and then he works to apply that life specifically and personally and intentionally and in his timing exactly where we need it. Exactly where we need it.